All right, well, good morning. Hey, it's good to see you guys here uh, today. Uh, like Bree said, my name is Seth. I'm one of the pastors here uh, at, at Salem. So welcome to you. Welcome to you guys who are joining us online uh, as well. So sorry I can't see you, but we know that you're there. So uh, hey, it's been a couple of weeks uh, since I've uh, been up here. I was here for Youth Sunday uh, this last week, but wasn't preaching. So how many of you guys were here uh, this last week for Youth Sunday? Can we just say thank you to the youth really quick? Yeah, right? You know, we're going to do some follow-up on some of those things that were said and just kind of talked about in a couple of weeks as we look at investing in our church and, and really in the next generation. Uh, but we just pause and, and we just, man, this is so good to acknowledge and see that God is working in and through our youth. And so it's hope, tons of hope for our world, tons of hope for the next generation. So we're excited uh, to see that. We've been in this series called Cave Table Road. And if you're new to Salem, today's your first day, a um, little bit about Cave Table Road. Right? Cave Table Road to us is kind of this way of expressing the rhythms of Jesus that, that we aim to pursue and, and to model in our own lives. And so Cave, um, at least from a personal level, represents you know, this, this, this area in which we can come and spend time with Jesus, right? And so it's with you know, God's word and prayer, and maybe it's art, maybe it's running, walking, maybe it's fly fishing. You know, we each have kind of these different ways that we do that. But when we come out of cave time, there's something so special about cave time where we go, man, that was holy and good. But then we also have kind of like this corporate cave, right? Where it's where we come together on a Sunday morning and we sing our hearts out and we, and we pray and we listen to God's word and, and we see like our larger family and we leave and we can go, man, that's holy. This is so good. But then all of a sudden we get to the table and the table is where it gets a little bit messier, gets a little bit harder, not just because we're talking about food and people eat messy, which is a real thing, and we could do a whole theology on food if we wanted to, but when we talk about the table today, what we're going to be talking about is how we deal with sin in our lives and the people that are there to help us wrestle in the midst of our life. So if you got a Bible, you can join me in Colossians chapter 3. It's in the New Testament. It's kind of way to the right uh, in your Bible will be chapter 3, starting with verse um, one, but while you're turning there or pulling it up on your phone or, or whatever you use, I just want to share the story. About 15 years ago, my wife and I were living in Colorado. We were in youth ministry uh, at the time, and um, we got invited over to this family's house to their table. And what I love about the table is that it's a place not just where you eat, because I'm a foodie and I love food, um, as long as it doesn't have mayonnaise in it. Um, I love food, and so I love being with people. And so here's a space where you, like, you get to talk to people and you hear their stories, and so we're, we're learning all about how mom and dad met and you know, how kids entered in the picture and just all these cool things. And one of the stories uh, that came out of this table time uh, with this family was about their family pet, Samson the Hamster. Okay, Samson the hamster, let me tell you the story, is that um, they were living in Boulder, and their house was really just poorly heated, just was not heated well, they're having some heating issues, a big giant snowstorm was coming, and so they thought, well, do we like bundle up and live in our home, or do we drive down to Colorado Springs to Grandpa and Grandma's house, and we just do this, you know, kind of like stay out the storm there. And so they decided to pack up, and so they drive down, and about two-thirds of the way down to Colorado Springs, about two-hour drive, and one of the girls in the back seat says, oh no, dad, we forgot Samson. And now if you're dad in this moment, right, like you've got a decision <laughs> that you've got to make. 
is Samson the hamster weren't turning around and driving another hour and a half back, then to go another two hours back, you know, for, for the sake of the hamster. And the girls are upset, and, you know, obviously all this stuff, and dad makes the decision, you know, he'll probably be fine, so we'll just, we'll go live out the storm, and then we'll come back, um, and we'll check in on him, see how he's doing. And so they, they leave, they go down, snowstorm ends, I think it was longer than they anticipated, they come back home, and the girls run to Samson's cage, and I kid you not, what they find is Samson the hamster frozen solid. Like, like, like a brick, people like a brick. And people, so many people come and they're like, Seth, there's no way this story is true. 100%, at least as far as I know and the way that I'm telling it, okay? So frozen hamster and the girls are a wreck, right? The girls are a wreck. Um, This is a really big deal. So dad in this moment is like, you know, what do I do? How do I love my daughters at the same time be a steward of God's creation? You know, so he's thinking, you know, maybe the most humane thing I can do is at least to thaw him. (laughs) So dad takes hamster, Samson, and he lays him on top of the furnace. Which, guys, is better than a microwave, okay? So, lays Samson the hamster on the furnace, right? And he begins to dethaw. Which is such a, you never think you'd say that, right? That's such a weird sentence. Dad comes back an hour later, he looks, and here's what he sees. And I was like, no way. He was like, yep. But two hours later, Samson is back to life. Frozen solid? And he was running around, living the dream, got a second chance at life, praise Jesus. You know? Like, here's Samson. And so what do they do? They're like, girls are amazing. The story has changed. Wow, this is great. And so they love on Samson. They put him back in his cage, and he lives about for a week in there. And then you don't know where this is going. But Samson, somehow, and the parents and family are like, well, we don't know if, like, Samson was, like, angry at us or something. But, like, somehow he gets out of his cage. He eats a hole into the drywall and then proceeds to live in the walls of the house for over a year. Like, can you, like, just imagine, like, hearing the, like, you're over for dinner, don't worry, that's just Samson, you know, he's just living in the walls, not a big deal. You're like, what in the world does this have to do with table? Okay, let me tell you, we're talking about sin, we're talking about sin, right? Here's the deal, you and I, all of us have hamsters running around in our house. All of us have sin, Right? All of us have sinned. And I don't know about you, but if you're like me, there are times in life that like, you feel like you've been fighting against and, and wrestling and, and like beating and wrestling against this whole idea of sin. And maybe for a time, all of a sudden, they be, that, that one sin or two sins, whatever it is, begins to disappear. And you're like, oh man, I've killed it. <laughs> I've killed the sin. But then inject circumstance. Maybe your, your job situation change or somebody comes and enters into your life and just creates turmoil, whatever it is, but somehow your circumstances change and you can begin to see that sin start to twitch, right? And so out of panic and fear, what we do is that we shove it into the cage. And yet the reality is that we all know is that sin can't be caged, Right? No matter how hard you and I work and fight and toil against our sin, it will always come out. 
And it somehow makes it out and into the recesses of our lives. And so we, we, we come back and we're like, man, my sin wasn't dead after all. It's like my sin was in stasis. I thought it was gone, but here it actually is. And so it's as funny as it is, but we say this. And when it comes to sin, we all have hamsters running around the walls. Every single one of us. And so when it comes to the table, what we're talking about is we're talking about dealing with life at a little bit different level with people. It's just a little bit different, isn't it? Because what we have to do is that we're forced to ask ourselves the question, is what's happening in my cave time over here changing how I live my life? Is it changing? And who are the people that I've invited to the table to help me in the midst of my struggle? We're going to be in Colossians chapter 3. We're going to start, really be in verse 5 and kind of down. But I want to read verses 1 through 4 for context, okay? Here's what it says. Because it's really, it's built out of this conditional relationship. Uh, and some of you guys um, have, you know, know Jesus and you have a relationship with Jesus and maybe some of you don't. This is talking to people that do. Because it says, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Like, we're not going to unpack this, but you could just pause and go, man, have you ever wondered or just thought and been amazed about how incredible of a reality that actually describes? That you and I, because of relationship with Jesus, have this identity, we're identified with Jesus in his life, his death, his resurrection, his life, and his glory. Like that's, that's where our identity actually revolves and that we as Christians then are preoccupied and in pursuit, total preoccupation and total pursuit of the things that are above. That's the way that it's designed. And yet you and I know that, that we live in this kind of this already but not yet tension, don't we? Like we, we live in this, in this reality where the, the good things have started, but Jesus hasn't come back yet. Eternity isn't here. The kingdom of God is here, but eternity is not. We're waiting for that. And so while you and I are redeemed people, we find that there is a war inside of us. There's a battle that is being waged inside of our very being. Because what we're going to find this morning is that we have an old, there's an old self on the one hand, there is a new self on the other hand, and these two selves are in tension, but at the center of that tension is a gospel identity. It's so important, so, so, so important. So let's dive in to this old self that Paul describes and how he talks about dealing with it, okay? Very strong language, out of the gate, here's what he says, put to death. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. Right now, if, if, I just want you to imagine for a second, because, you know, in first century, in first century times, right, um, they did not have the privilege of having their own Bibles, Right? So it's not like, you know, Paul's or the, whoever's leading the church in Colossae is like, hey, great, we're going to read from Colossians today. Great, let me grab my 800-page papyrus. Okay, it takes two hours just to turn the pages. 
right? And it's not like they have phones that they can just turn to. Guys, there's one letter that was written to the entire community. And so everybody is in the room listening to this letter being read. And the first two chapters, had we have read them, is about Christ's supremacy, the beauty of our identity. And so up to this point, as you're listening to the letter, you're like, oh man, so good. I love being a Christian. Ew, what did you just say? Sexual immorality? Put to death? You see, all of a sudden, like, we jump into the deep end of this, and we go, like, is this really something that, that we're supposed to talk about? Like, in, in the middle of church? Like, in the middle of this? Because we're getting this glimpse of sin, right? And, and the language here that Paul, the author, starts with, he says, here's the deal, I want you to put it to death. Now, and automatically, for you and I, there's this potential tension that exists because God is a God of life, isn't he? God creates the cosmos, he creates the sun, the light and the darkness, he creates water, he creates land, he creates animals, he creates cute tiny little butterflies and baby bunnies, which are cute when they're little and horrible when they're older, you know? Like, there's so much about creation, and then he creates humanity, which by the way, part of the humanity and its function is to bring life into the world, right? And so when we see death entering into the world as a result of humanity, we go, that's not okay. Like when, like this last week, when we saw that there was another active shooter in Atlanta, or there's an active shooter anywhere these days, it's so anticipated, and we go, that's not okay. Because God's a God of life, right? And so then how is it that, that God here, speaking through Paul, is like, I want you to bring it to death. Because it's, it's flipping this, right? It's flipping the narrative. And what we're beginning to see is how deeply opposed God is to sin. And, and we know, that, and here's this reality for you and I, is that we can't actually kill our sin. We can't. It's not like we can somehow like, go back to Lord of the Rings and have them invent some special hammer that like, hammers out the sin in our hearts. Like some fantasy tool. Like you can't. You and I will sin for the rest of our lives, which is why we need grace every single moment, moment to moment, day to day, week to week, month to month, and year to year for the rest of our life. We will go on sinning. So what is it that Paul is talking about? He's using this really, really strong but figurative language, and it's as if Paul, the author, is saying this, guys, this is so important. So important. God is opposed to sin. This is so important that I want you to consider that knowing that your instruments can be used either for righteousness or for sin, I want you to think of them as dead. I want you to treat your members of your body, your instruments, as much as you can as if they are dead. We can't get rid of the sin. We can't actually kill it, but it's like we don't want it. We fight, want to fight against that right? And so that's the first thing he really talks about, because he says put to death, right? There's these five things that Paul is going to list that really can ruin a person's life. And he's going to start, he's going to use the pathway of kind of, kind of sexual acts in nature. But we'll find this is kind of one pathway. But here's the deal. He starts with this word, sexual immorality, okay? So if we were just to draw a circle, 
right? If we were to draw a circle and, and just kind of imagine that this, this line represents, you know, kind of symbolically the, the, um, the idea of sexual immorality. Now, for you and I, um, every single person in this room um, are created, we're created by God with sexual urges, some more and some less, but everybody has them. Okay? It's intrinsic to how God designed us as physical beings. And in part, when it's used appropriately and done right the way that God designed it to, it's in part how life enters into the world. Right? But there's also death that comes through that because as soon as Satan can enter into this realm, because it's so intrinsic to our physical being, Satan can concoct some of the most dangerous situations and toxins for humanity. And he starts with this, this kind of this umbrella thing, this general thing that's about the act of sexual sin. But then he goes into this next one, and this next one. He goes a little bit deeper, and he talks about impurity. Now, impurity, we're moving from an act to kind of a perception, because for you and I, each of us have kind of these rubrics in our brain that help us determine and discern what's the difference between right and wrong in this world in regards to the concept of sex. And so there's this impurity that, 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 that means that we might choose or lean towards sex in its bad way, not in a good way, right? So there's that. And then he goes on, he talks about passions. Passions is another word for, for lust, right? And so it's kind of like this. I don't know if this ever happens, but it's like you drive by Wendy's and you go, man, I'm craving a Wendy's Frosty. But instead of a Frosty, it's a human being. And all of a sudden, it's that you're craving and lusting after something that you want, but for your own sexual purposes, right? Okay? So he goes, goes into that. He goes into one more deeper layer, and he talks about evil desires. Evil desires are hard for us to pinpoint in life. It's really, it's really uncertain as to how we kind of pointed that, but it's something deep inside of us that's constantly pulsating out of us, that's pushing and, and making us gravitate, wants to gravitate towards these evil things. It's kind of the scope of evil. But then the last thing that he does is he comes in here, and he defines this last one, he says covetousness. Now, for the sake of trying not to write the long word covetousness, and because this fits in my circle, I'm gonna use the word greed, okay? Um, here's what greed or covetousness is, right? It's this idea of longing for and wanting more and more and more and more and more and more of something that doesn't belong to you, right? That's what greed or that's what covetousness actually is. And he says that this is at the core. And he says that this is a, a core humanity, a core problem for humanity. And he says, here's the deal. Like when you think about this, this was so, so like desperate about the situation because the promise of pursuing things out of greed is that you will, as you get more, be satisfied. But here's the, here's the catch. You will never be satisfied. Because you're motivated by something that you will pursue and pursue and pursue that you can never have enough of. Do you get that? Like, that's how dangerous this is. In fact, this is why Paul associates this word with idolatry. Because when you're pursuing something, you're pursuing something other than God. And it's in pathway, and it's leading you in this direction of idolatry. And so idolatry is this. If you think about this as an onion, Idolatry is what's wrong with us underneath everything else that's wrong with us. 
Because if you go back to the Old Testament, what's the number one command? You shall have what? No other gods. No other gods before me. Now, if that was like number 10, which how many of you could list number 10? You know, I don't know. Like if it was number 10, you might go, ah, I don't remember that one. It's number one, people. This is a foundational piece of our existence between our relationship with God. And we totally fail at this. Because when we're pursuing out of greed or covetousness, that's when Paul says, guess what? That's idolatry. You're worshiping something other than God, right? Other than, other than God. And that's why Paul can say very next line, he says, this is why the wrath of God is coming. It's not because of sexuality. It's not because of that. He's coming because humanity has a heart worship problem. The wrath of God is coming because we're worshiping something other than him. So as we think about this, right, as we come back to this, right, what Paul is doing as an author is he's taking us on this journey. And he's drawing an arrow from the outside all the way down to the inside. And he's saying, if you were to trace this all the way down, here's where the root is. This is the crack in the foundation, is idolatry, right? Now, for you and me, like, by the way, like, with the Colossian church, you know, this is just one pathway that Paul uses to get us to the core problem. He uses sexuality, um, and so it's very significant and relevant to the Colossian church. But guess what? It's pretty prevalent and relevant here in our culture, isn't it? Right? This sexual pathway that we use and abuse. Right? And yet, there is this reality that if you trace it all the way back to the very beginning, here, we also find that it's greed. So I don't think applicationally that it's stuck just to the sexual realm. Because what happens is that sometimes, like, this other sin comes out of that same thing, but it comes out over here, and it comes out over here. Maybe it's in my finances. I don't know. But it comes out all over the places. And so we can look at this and go, hey, maybe sex stuff isn't your vice, but maybe this is. Guess where they all lead back to? Idolatry, right? It all leads back to idolatry, to this love of self. And here's the thing is that for you and I, guys, when we come to church, we look good. I can affirm that you look good. All of you right now, however you came, you look good. But underneath how you look, there is a war. And there is a sin that is in each inside of us. And guess what? We need, you and I need to be so in, in uh, how do I say this? We need to be so understanding and perceptive of the sin that's inside of us because it affects us, but it doesn't just affect us, it affects other people. Look at verse seven. This sin will come out and it's gonna affect other people. It says, in these two in these you too once walked when you were living in them. So he's going to give a whole other list of things that, that we lived in before. But he says, here's the deal. You need to put these away. Put to death that stuff. Put this stuff away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Put them away. Because he starts with this kind of, this is all about language, the language that we use that comes out and affects and hurts other people. 
And he starts generally, and he moves all the way down to the bottom, which is like this really kind of inappropriate stuff that we use on a very personal level. But you think about anger. You go, ah, Seth, I'm not an angry person. Okay, maybe not. But you and I all have angry outbursts. Like it's all a part of us in some way, in some way, shape, or form or level. You know, many years ago, I was actually preaching the first part of this passage um, at, a, at another church, and, and uh, we had Saturday night service and Sundays, and so I preached this uh, on a Saturday night, and on my way home, after I just had just talked about anger, on my way home, I drove past a yard and had an anger fit, because here's what I saw, Boom, the yard of the month sign, and I got home, and I looked at my wife, and I said, guess what? Guess who got the yard of the month sign? Uh-huh. Her. Again. She gets it every other month. And here's, the, here's what's so frustrating. She doesn't even do the work. She pays people to do it. How in anything is that fair? I work hard on my lawn. I want the yard of the month sign. You know, and I had this, and my wife's like, uh-huh, uh-huh, wow, that's so dumb, <laughs> you know? And yeah, I get it, you know? Like, we have these, these anger outbursts, but there's also this wrath and malice and slander and obscene talk. So if we come back over here, right, these things that, that Paul is talking about, anger, what if that's just an offshoot of this, right? Wrath. Malice over here, right? You got slander. You know what slander is? Slander is when you take a person's character and integrity and you take an axe to it. And then there's obscene talk. That's when we just use shame to shame people. You know how easy it is in our world? You mean you could, you could look on Twitter or whatever and in half a second you would find shame. So easy in our culture to shame people. Right? And what Paul is doing is he's saying, you got to put all of these away. And so when you think about it from a big picture standpoint, like as you step back, here's what I think Paul is doing. Is he's showing, he's bringing anger and wrath and malice and, and slander and obscene talk. He's bringing that stuff to the peripheral. Because you might be people who go, man, like those other things, that's you and that's gross. But maybe that's not my thing. Or maybe you're denying it. I don't know. Maybe it's a problem and you just deny it. But all of a sudden, you go, but, but anger and wrath and malice, obscene talk and slander, all of a sudden, he brings it to the peripheral. He's giving you a big picture. He's giving you a big picture. At the same time, he's showing you the depth. Because if you trace any of those, whether it's sexual or not, you trace it, where does it go? Idolatry. Comes right down to my heart, right down to my heart. This is where Paul, he shifts and he says, I want to talk about this new identity, this gospel identity. Look at verse 9. This is strange language to start, but it'll make sense in a second. He says, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Do not lie. You know, we're in this season at home, uh, my wife and I are in this season at home where we're trying to figure out kind of this whole honesty conversation with our daughter. And so, you know, our daughter Eden, who's four, turning five, and, and we'll say, hey, you know, can you pick up your crayons or something, you know, whatever it is, it's a, one of a hundred billion things, you know, pick it up, please. And then she's like, yeah, I picked it up. Okay, um, are you being honest? 
hey, look, a ball. Okay, we're not being honest, right? But see, now the Eden is even in the stage where she can even, like, she's anticipating what I'm going to ask. So she's trying to beat the system. So I'm like, hey, Eden. And she's like, hey, Daddy, I picked up my crayons. I'm being honest. which is cute, right? It's super cute, but here's, and here's the reality is that truth is so incredibly important. God's word, truth, speaking truth to one another out of love, right? Incredibly important. Guess what? I don't think that that's what he's talking about. When he says, do not lie, he's not just adding it to the list of wrath, anger, mouth. That's not what he's doing. He's talking about your and my identity, Because when you and I live in the old self, if we have a new relationship with Christ, if we've been raised again with Christ, and we have a relationship with Jesus, we have been regenerated, we are new, we are transformed, we are new creations. And if we live in our old self with its practices, guess what? That is a form of lying. Because you're lying to the world about who you really are. And you're lying to your family about who you really are. You're lying to yourself about who you really are, and you're lying to God. Because that's not who you are. Your identity is not sexual stuff, or anger, or wrath, or malice. Your identity is Jesus. Your identity is Jesus. So don't live in that identity. Let's put on the new. Look at this new identity, verse 12. He says, put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Gosh, you ever just, are you just ever just amazed at how much God loves us? That he would call us that? Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Then he goes on, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. But he goes, if you don't hear anything else, here's what I want you to hear. Because above all of these, put on love, which binds together, everything together in perfect harmony. Right? So if we come back to this, here's where we're going to find the tension. Right? Is what, what Paul was talking about, those earlier verses, this old self is rooted in this idolatrous greed. And yet you come to Jesus in this new identity and what we find is love. And when we put on love, things begin to change. Every single morning, you wake up, like today, yesterday, tomorrow, a week from now, you will wake up and you will go to wherever your clothes are. Maybe it's your closet, maybe it's your your dresser, you're a student, teenager, it's your floor. I don't know, right? But you're going to go to where your clothes are and you're going to make a choice. What do I put on? Now in the Greek, there's this cool thing called the middle voice, which means that I'm the one doing the action and I am also the recipient. So when I choose to put on a shirt, I don't like have these royal servants who like put it on for me. You know, like I put it on. And so what Paul is saying is that every morning, every day, every moment, you have a choice to put on love. To put it on. That's your choice. To put it on. To become, to become more like Jesus. To be renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Right? So as we come and as we make this choice, all of a sudden we look, oh man, like here's, here's compassion, Man, like there's compassion, right? What's over here? Here's kindness. 
right? What else? Here's some humility over here. Uh, here's some meekness over here. And here's some patience over here. And as you step back, you actually can see that what Paul has done is that he's lift, listed five vices and he's listed five virtues. Now, they're not meant, like these, these, these virtues are not meant to be this direct antithesis to each of these sins. What it is, is that each of these is a representation of Jesus himself. These are the attributes. Compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Does that talk about Jesus' ministry? 100%, right? So when we do these things, guess what? Boom, boom, boom. That's, I don't know why I'm saying that, but it's happening, you know? Here's where it's going. And then, and then you look at this and then you step back and you go, wow, it's so incredibly cool that you and I can actually put on Jesus. That we can become more like Jesus. And we go, wow, that's my biggest dream. That should be, by the way, as a Christian, our biggest dream. That we can look more and more like Jesus. But the further you step back from this board, you see tension, don't you? Where's the tension? is that there's an old me and then there's a new me. And these things are intention, aren't they? They're intention. You see, there's an old self and there's a new self. And this is why Paul, this is why Paul says this. He says, this is why you need people in your life who will bear with one another. You need people in your life who will bear with you, right? When, when life is hard and things or personalities are different or whatever, right? Like we are called to bear with one another above all because it comes out of love, right? Here's the bad news for you. You have to bear up with me. But here's more bad news. I have to bear up with you. But here's the reality. It's actually not bad news. It's good news. We bear with one another. And when, when offense happens, when hurtful things happen, that's when it gets really sticky. That's when it gets really hard, doesn't it? Because when there's an offense against you or somebody you love or, or something has changed and all of a sudden there's this need for forgiveness, that gets really hard. And hurt happens in all kinds of ways in life. And some of it is really big and some of it's really small. And as a pastor, I hear all of it. You know, like I have people who come to my office or we'll do lunch and they'll tell me about forgiveness and they'll say, I just can't forgive that person. And the whole, I'm like, on the outside, I'm like, okay, yeah, I can understand that how much that hurts you, but really? Because he took your toothbrush? You know, or whatever it is. And then there's things that are really big. Guys, I got, I got friends in my life who are going through really hard stuff that I look at them and I go, I don't know how you do it. That's so incredibly hard that you would forgive that person. Here's what I know is that scripture says, God says, forgive each other. But he goes one step deeper and he says, here's the mandate. By the way, if you thought that bearing with someone was hard, this is going to be the hardest because here's the mandate. Just as Jesus or the Lord forgave you, you must also forgive. So how much did Jesus remove our sins from each other? As far as the east is from the west. Right? And so all of a sudden you go, man, okay, so if bearing with one another, that's three inches. That's hard, but it's doable. 
Forgiving somebody? Man, that's 12 inches. That's a lot harder. But guess what? Like, I can't stretch my arms far enough for how difficult and how hard it is to forgive like Jesus. And yet, that's the mandate. Forgive like Jesus. And I would say this, that perhaps no greater act in life than forgiving somebody else forces our actions to be in alignment with our Jesus identity. Because when you think about Jesus on the cross, he looks out at the very people he created and they reject him and he forgives. No greater act. You see, on the one hand, guys, we have an old self and we have a new self. And both of those are intention. But at the center of that tension is a gospel identity where we are called to put to death this stuff, to get rid of it so that way it's not a temptation and to put on the new. Because there's two things I think that make this really hard. One is that when you come back to this board and you look at the center of this, right? You got love and that makes sense. The love for God and love for others, right? That makes sense. But you look at the top and it says greed. You know, just another way to talk about greed or covetousness is a love for self, right? So at the center of this circle is love. The question is, am I going to love myself or am I going to love God? That's, you can realize how hard of a tension that is, why we constantly fail in this. Because at the center of it is love. And guess what also makes this hard? Is that no matter how much you operate out of this, you're never getting rid of this. That's there. It might go dormant for a while, but you can't physically kill it. It will be around. But the more we put on this, the better we are. The more we put on love, the better we are. And that's the positive. As we think about this, we go, gosh, like for you and I, and Brady talked about this in worship, and I would reiterate it again, what's the thing that we want most in life? Because it really should be, like our collective resounding answer should be that we want to be more like Jesus. And the good news is, is that we can be renewed in that image. And you go, you go how do we do this? Here's the thing. You know what I think the difference maker is in this? The difference maker is who is around you to help you. Who is around? Who is at your table? Because here's what we're going to find. Like as you look back at this, it's kind of like this round circular table. And maybe this is a stretch, but I want you to see that the people in your life that you invite to do life with you around your table, whoever that is, right? These people that you're inviting into your life, around your table to do life with, these are the people who understand this tension. They look at you and they say, I know that there's a gap between the person that you oftentimes are and the person that you want to be. And so I will bear with you in this. And I will forgive you when there's offense. And I will help you forgive like Christ forgave. But guess what? It doesn't stop there. It's you and me being renewed into the image of our creator together. That's the table. So here's my question. Who is at your table? Who are the people that you've invited in your life? Guess what? Guys, we all have hamsters, right? As dumb and silly as that is. We all have hamsters running through the walls of our house. And there's an old self that needs to be put to death, and there's a new self that we need to put on. 
And there's this gospel identity in the center where Paul says, do not lie to one another. The people that you invite around your table that you would commit to say, we're not going to lie to one another. We're going to do life together and we're going to bear with each other. We're going to forgive, but we're going to be renewed into the image of Jesus together. And you know where it starts? It starts with your family. So I want to make an invitation for you to think about how you do this as a family. How, how do you do table with your family? And I'm not just talking about eating food. I'm just talking about those moments and those environments where you gather together and you're doing life together. Because it starts with your family, but then it extends to your church family too. Because this is the broader family. And so here at church, the groups are a part of our philosophy. This is why we have small groups for kids and for youth. It's why we have life groups. It's why we have adult Sunday school. It's why we have grief share. It's why we have divorce care. It's why we have living free. Because it's about people that we're inviting to our table to do life with. And in a moment, what we're going to do is we're actually going to invite you to Jesus' table. Because any of us, myself included, as we look at this board, can acknowledge that there's probably a gap between the person that I am right now and the Jesus that I want to be. And so as we take the Lord's Supper, as we take communion, we get to deal with that sin and we get to bring it before the Lord and we thank him for the grace, but we say, make me like you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we finish this morning, as we take communion, as we turn to communion, Lord, I pray that, uh, that you would be tugging at our hearts, that you would help us to see and that in each of our lives there's a gap. And maybe there are people in this room who have never made the commitment to Jesus. And so there's this tugging and this urge to, to want you, to want grace, to want forgiveness of sins. And maybe for those of us in this room who are going, man, there's a, there is a, a small gap. Maybe there's a huge gap in my life between who I am right now and the person that I want to be. And Lord, we know that we'll never get rid of sin. But we do know that when sin is there, that grace abounds even more. But it's not that we want to be a people who would abuse grace and just live in sin. We rejoice at the wonderful, praiseworthy grace and mercy of God. At the same time, we say it's not okay to stay in my sin. We don't want that. Not for myself, not for each other, and not for our church. That's not what we want to show the world. We do not want to lie to the world. We want to give the world Jesus. And so this morning, Lord, whatever it is that's going on in our hearts and wherever you have brought us, Lord, would you make it clear? And may we rejoice in your grace, but may our the deepest longing of our heart be this, make me like Jesus. In your name we pray, amen.